This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, there is scientific consensus that human civilization is a threat to life on Earth. Efforts are underway to alleviate that threat, but there is much doubt over whether we can turn back our cascading environmental impacts. Every day, our consumer and industrial practices lead us closer to a tipping point. What will it take to move us from potential disaster to sustainability? In her new book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, environmental scientist Jessica Hernandez points to indigenous knowledge and history for answers. The fact that the colonizing civilizations which came to threaten earthly survival attempted to erase indigenous people is a subtext of Hernandez's work. She speaks here of survivors' efforts to heal from genocide. Indigenous communities are especially at risk to climate change. Can the conquerors somehow retreat from their excesses, learn from the vanquished, and forge a sustainable path forward? Hernandez is part of a movement intent on guiding contemporary scientists and cultures, long dismissive of indigenous wisdom, toward such a transition. Their vision would realize holistic methods of land, water, and forest management, thereby restoring a more natural human relationship with Earth. Jessica Hernandez is a Seattle-based indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate. She speaks here with Claudia Castro Luna, Seattle's first civic poet and a former Washington State Poet Laureate, who teaches now at Seattle University. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event on February 18th. Here, Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson introduces the program. Jessica Hernandez is um, a daughter of both El Salvador and Mexico, um, a father who is Maya Chiorte uh, in, from El Salvador, and a mother is a, a Zapotec uh, background from Oaxaca. And um, she herself, in a, in a story that is somewhat in this book, but may get drawn out more tonight, um, grew up in Los Angeles and is now here um, doing, having taken her PhD in it from the College of Environmental Science at the University of Washington, where she has done some teaching and has continues to do research and has become quite active in various um, fields, um, environmental, cultural, community, um, indigenous and otherwise, including um, starting her own organization um, or helping found one called Pina Sol, um, which is an environmental um, advocacy group that does work, especially for indigenous and people of color and, and making them more part of what have often been um, very white um, settler um, agendas. And um, that is a, is also part of the book she's written. And you also have um, with us uh, 
the wonderful poet here in Seattle, Claudia Castroluna. She's been very involved in supporting the work of all kinds of other poets and, and writers, and as herself, um, besides teaching presently at Seattle University and Hugo House, is the um, author of the poetry collections The City Killing Marias, which um, is a book that's done particular extra attention in various fields. Uh, the beautiful unfolding long poem that's called One River, A Thousand Voices uh, that's on the Columbia River. And um, F, the forthcoming book of poems called Chipota Under the Moon coming in May from Tia Kucha Press. Um, but now please join in giving good virtual attention and applause to Jessica Hernandez and Claudia Castroluna. Thank you both. Thank you, Rick. Jessica, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, it's, it's amazing that we're both living in Seattle and here we are talking through a screen. Uh, uh, but um, to begin, I w- and to pick up on something that Rick just talked about, which is the way in which you weave the, the here, this, this place that we are, uh, where we live in Puget Sound, Washington State, and there, old Mexico, um, El Salvador, Central America, um, and thinking about your book. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of a way to start this conversation, thinking of the, of the there and here and the way your book really weaves um, these regions together. It's not one place or another place. It's you, you really endeavor to bring these stories, to, to weave people's experiences and, their, and, the, and the land they, they, that they're part of um, and to dismantle this notion that we are all in little silos, right? And that and that there's these borders that are almost, you know, physical, right? When we know that that they, that they are not, and that people move and have always moved, and that the that what happens in one place affects the rest of us. So, with that in mind, I was and and what we said at the beginning of the conversation when you said when you presented this book and talked about it people ask you about the title. I was wondering if um, you would start by, um, by that, by, by engaging us with that, by talking about that, and also by bringing um, your father's voice into, into the room. Because another thing that you do in this book is that you present these arguments and you also bring in a myriad of people. You have interviewed many folks, and um, you really let their words stand in the text so that you're not, um, you're not, you're letting them exist as they are and what they, you give them space in the text itself. So it's really nice to move through this book and hear people's voices and hear people's expressions and just, you almost hear where they're standing as they're sharing this uh, information with you. So if you if you wouldn't mind starting us off with with the title of the book and maybe reading from the early pages of the book where your dad comes in so fully into the story. Yeah, so when they open you to be agree, it's an honor to be sharing this space, especially with you, Claudia. As we know, you know, there's not that many Central American writers. So yeah, thank you for that question. So I wanted to start off by kind of sharing the narrative that I, my father shared with me that kind of basically you know, like you were mentioning, is the foundation of the title. So I asked them, based on your lived experiences, why do you think you survived? His response, 
I would say that I survived because nature ser served as a protector, protective shield for me. It took care of me when no one would. As I mentioned, I would go hiding in Monte when the Escuadrones de la Muerte were coming to look for me. They knew of every child or adult who was living in, the can in my canton because the ones who would join would tell them about the rest of us. Nature not only protected me, it saved my life. I remember I was 14 at the time and our guerrilla encampment was bombarded because we were attacked by the military. I thought my life was going to end because I remember I sought refuge under a banana tree. This was one, the, this was one of the banana trees we had in our encampment. For a couple of months, it served as our only food source for the entire guerrilla. We survived off bananas from the, these trees and tortillas we will make that we will season with salt. Now I recall during this bombardment of our encampment that a, fall, a bomb fell on top of the tree I was under. My short life flashed before my eyes, but as the bomb dropped, I saw how the banana trees wrapped its leaves around this bomb and it did not ignite. I was surprised because every bomb that was dropping was going off. I did receive gunshots during this battle. When everything stopped, the guerrilla took me and one of my fellow's comrades who had lost his leg and dropped us off in the bunke field. They left us with no water or food. The other comrade lost his life because he was bleeding a lot. I do not know how I managed to get myself up. I could not walk well, but I managed to cut off a branch from this banana tree and used it as a crutch. I walked all the way to Guatemala, which was not far from where we were. I lived close to the border of Guatemala, and our Ergria encampment was even closer to Guatemala. Before I left, I tried getting help from my family in El Salvador, but they were all scared that the military would come and murder them if they help a guerrilla soldier. So it kind of, you know, shares that story that he shared with me that, you know, nature protects us as long as we protect nature. And because of that banana tree and also the leaves, it kind of gave him a fresh start to kind of seek refuge. And that's why, you know, I decided to make the title Fresh Banana Leaves. So you're setting up a, a parallel between the, the, the way in which nature saved your dad and the way in which we might yet have a chance at saving our natural landscapes. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, because I think that oftentimes, you know, we forget that, um, you know, especially because of religion and how it has been introduced, right? We're often taught that, you know, there's guardian angels. But I think for my father, he also told me that, you know, the our um, plant and animal relatives are also our guardian angels that they're protecting us that, um, you know, obviously they do have, you know, sometimes animals have instincts, right? Or sometimes they attack humans. But in this case, the banana tree kind of protected him. And, you know, if we protect nature, it will allow, it will, you know, we will allow our landscapes to continue protecting us, especially for those of us who come from countries that are in political turmoil, like war. And in this case, El Salvador was during that time. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the notions that that you bring up in the book a few times is is this idea of ecological debt. I mean, the the book is full of uh, for me as a big non scientist. Of course, I, I read um, lay lay science, right? Um, and in fact, I'm, I'm teaching a class on trees, as a matter of fact. So I've been doing a lot of reading on on trees, but there were terms which I was unfamiliar with or didn't understand. Um, and ecological debt was one of those, was one of those terms, which is to me relates to what you're saying. And that if we, um, 
if we protect and our natural environment, we are ensuring our own future. If we destroy it and don't keep it, we're ensuring our demise, right? So, and just the way in which indigenous communities have been negatively impacted um, by the way in which um, agro businesses and um, have have taken over these lands and exploited them in, in the fashion in which they have. So, if can you tell us a little bit about this this um, concept of ecological debt as it relates to your to your argument about the way in which it has affected and affects indigenous people? Yeah, thank you for your question. I think that oftentimes, um, you know, we have to kind of. Um, come to the understanding that capitalism is not an indigenous value that is but it's something that you know we still have to uphold in our societies because you know there's still um, settler colonial governments that are governing our lands and I think that you know that's why I play around with that word debt right because you know if you're in debt that means that you owe something or you kind of have the biggest burden um, especially in this capitalistic society so what I refer to ecological debt is the fact that um, it's not indigenous peoples who are increasing the greenhouse gas emissions. It's not indigenous peoples who are heavily relying on extractive energy sources that are, you know, um, releasing these greenhouse gases. It's not indigenous peoples who are making international policies or policies that govern the entire state. Uh, I mean, unless the government, you know, is being if there's an indigenous president, which is not the case in our countries. So that ecological debt is a reality that despite not being the major, you know, causing these climate change impacts, our communities are experiencing the worst climate change impacts and there's no resources, no support given to us in order for us to mitigate or adapt to those climate change impacts. So it's kind of like, you know, having that that heavy load of having to continue doing the work so that our communities survive, so that our children survive without having those resources to actually do the mitigation and the adaptation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it also makes me think of, 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 of the border crisis, right? And, and we have so many, um, I mean, when people look at the immigrant crisis, um, they think immediately maybe of a political or an economic reasoning, right? For me, what's happening with, and in this case specifically of El Salvador, because that's where I come from, um, this the, the increasing numbers of people at the border, women and and and, and children uh, seeking asylum in the United States, is for me related to the war. So it's a it's an aftermath of the civil war. Uh, to me, the war isn't over. This is still the war, um, even though you know there were peace treaty the the peace treaty signed in ninety two wasn't. Um, it wasn't really a thorough document, right? So the impacts of the devastation of the war continue to play out in people's lives, but also the devastation of the environment, right? So climate change and the lack the lack of rain, because my dad, I have family that live in El Salvador. So both the, the hurricanes and all that, you know, just the amount of water that destroys crops um, and also the lack of it. It's, it's this kind of, um, the the normal cycles that rain always arrived in May, right? Always came early days of May, and you could count on planting a milpa, so that the harvest was 
was done around the natural water cycle, that has been completely disrupted. And people are leaving also because of because of that. And I think you you also mentioned that in your in your book. So can you can you tell us how that how you see that the the immigration crisis as as you explain it in the book and the various community you've interviewed people who come from impacted communities as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story because oftentimes, you know, these are hard stories for us to share. And I think for those of us who are doing any immigration work, especially, you know, as a member of the International Mayan League, we're often seeing how, you know, many of our people who are forced out of Central America are indigenous Maya people. And yet when they receive any immigration papers, it's all in Spanish, a language that many of our people don't know how to read or write. And I think that, you know, um, for instance, my father hasn't even learned how to read or write Spanish to this day. And oftentimes I like to remind people that the war wasn't a genocide against indigenous Maya people. It has been declared by the United Nations as such. So for us as indigenous peoples of these countries, we're still healing from a genocide. And, you know, oftentimes we, you know, even in, in many settings, I'm told that the genocides, you know, to kind of get over it, because it was a long time in, in history, right? Because that's how history portrays the genocides that occur against indigenous peoples. But in the case of indigenous peoples of Central America, it can be traced to our parents' generation, to our grandparents' generation, or even to our generations, depending on when we were born during that um, genocide. And in El Salvador, the war started because of La Gran Mantanza, which was, you know, their murder of indigenous Nahua people, um, you know, who were trying to, you know, build like, the coalition to kind of go against the, the oppressive tactics, right, that the government was using, especially as you mentioned, when our lands were sold in land grabs to international agricultural corporations that introduced that monoculture, right, that introduced those bananas to our regions, those pineapples, everything else that they decided that will help this export, right, in terms of like, you know, exporting and building more capital for the corporations and the government. And as you mentioned, right, we are seeing extreme weather patterns are either destroying our milpas through droughts or destroying them through the heavy rains that come from the hurricanes. Yet when it comes to getting so poor, right, it's not the rural regions where indigenous peoples or, you know, people who are still living off the land are getting their resources. And I think that, you know, we're seeing now today that there is a big um, tourism sector, right, that El Salvador is trying to build that will continue to displace more of our people and lead them to be forcefully displaced, which, you know, as you mentioned, it's already considered a crisis at the border. And, you know, we're still going to see our children being separated from their parents because, you know, and I think that sometimes that Central American identity is kind of ignored from that you know, kids in cages because, you know, everybody kind of labels us as Latino, Hispanic, but in reality, you know, we are Central American. Many of those children who are being separated are indigenous Maya children that don't even speak Spanish. So they're, you know, scared. They're receiving a lot of mental trauma because, you know, they're, you know, they're being talked to in Spanish or in English and they're being separated from their family. So we're seeing how, as you mentioned, the war hasn't ended because our people 
are continuing, you know, they continue to target our children. And I think that that was one of the things my father told me that, you know, they wanted to destroy us or, you know, commit that genocide. So they targeted the children. It was the children who were recruited. And we're seeing the parallels with the immigration crisis, right? Because they're targeting their children. And that's why they're being separated from their parents as well. Mm-hmm. I was in El Salvador maybe five years ago. I was trying to make memory this morning. I can't remember the exact time, but um, I, I, I have family there in this in this small town called Atikisaya, which is, like I said before, we started about 12 kilometers from the Guatemalan border. And in the, in the shade-grown coffee regions of El Salvador, Western El Salvador, right? So 1932, most of, most of those of the deaths happened in that Western region because those lands were ideal for the new crop, which was at the time coffee. And um, so I, I was reading the newspaper. My father lives not far away from where the Matanza took place in the hills, and read in the paper that there was going to be a, a ceremony to remember uh, the Matanza of 1932. And I thought to myself, I never thought that in my life I would, I would see in a newspaper in El Salvador th- that being recognized as such, that this was an indigenous killing. Um, mass, I mean, it was, thir- I mean, there are no exact numbers, right? Some people, it was in the thousands. 32,000, you know, I mean, it was decimation of uh, indigenous peoples in Western El Salvador. And um, so I went to this, I I asked somebody to take me immediately, I was reading the paper. And the next thing I know, I'm in a car going to Isalco, which is the the small town at the base of the iconic volcano, um, and which is often thought of the, uh, the the place where indigenous people lived past tense in El Salvador is always past tense, right? As if people aren't here living and thriving here in Washington, but also in El Salvador. And, and so I, I was there and the ceremony was held by local um, um, indigenous people who had hosted a meal and they had a woman who was maybe 92 years old. She could hardly she could hardly walk and she could not hear. I mean, she was very hard of hearing. And her great-grandson was the only one who could communicate with her. And she gave testimony. She was a, a girl when, when it happened. And she talked about how it was boys and men who were taken um, and how she remembered that it was boys who, whose parents would put them in dresses so that when they came looking for them, which they went to caserios, they were looking for any indigenous person, the, the boys would be saved. And so, so I had never heard that story. I heard it that first time from this woman who was saying she was there, she was a girl and she remembers little boys being put in girls' dresses as a way of helping them survive this killing. Um, and, and we were standing on top of mass graves um, is where this, it was really an, an amazing and intense moment to be standing there and to have in the national newspaper, the recognition that this happened because for a long time, I who grew up in the very region where this killing happened, I never heard of this in school. 
you know, and I was, I mean, I went through elementary school and middle school in El Salvador, and that matanza was never something that, that you heard, right? So this erasure, this continual erasure of the indigenous experience, but going back to your point about the children, which is also in 1932, I mean, you're talking about the children who were conscripted for the guerrillas and for the military, and now the children at the border, but also in 1932, it was here were children who were being massacred as well, indigenous children, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we see a lot in Central America, right? How that there's an indigenous erasure. And we see that in Guatemala as well, where, you know, the, the majority of the population are indigenous peoples. Yet the way that Guatemala kind of structures itself, you know, there's no recognition of indigenous peoples. And I think that El Salvador, it's also unique, right? That they're kind of coming to confront that history. But, you know, it's still history that has been hidden or silenced for so many years because, you know, people were scared, especially that they would target their children. So even many indigenous peoples, like we stop wearing um, our traditional clothing, right, so that we can blend in with the rest of the population. We stop speaking our indigenous languages and, you know, we are seeing how the war or in this case, the genocide kind of fracture our indigeneity. And it's something that, you know, many of us are trying to reclaim, but it's also something that continues to be hidden unless you have direct connections to your communities or your families. And, you know, it's unfortunate that we're seeing parallels from, you know, not that long ago still happened today, even through the border crisis. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. I mean, the other thing that you're talking about, people um, stopping to wear traditional clothing. And so in El Salvador, one of the things I learned in that, that, that day when I was in that, in that churchyard was that people stopped using their indigenous names and bought, bought last names that were Spanish sounding. So as to, as another way of sheltering their indigenous identities to be able to survive. So then Again, you have a, a, an erasure of, of your own personal history, right? I, I didn't know that indigenous people in El Salvador had to buy um, and they were extorted, right? <laughs> Probably extortion, right? To buy these names, to buy Spanish sounding names, to hide their uh, indigenous identities, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and that's even the reason why my last name is Hernandez, because, you know, it also happened that because during that generation, right, everything was in paper, there was no technology, there was no archives. So, you know, when the war happened, the alcaldía was burned down. So when my father needed some documentation, he could no longer get, you know, paper with his real indigenous last name. So he had to kind of get the Hernandez, as you were mentioning. It's basically what happened with our last name as well. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I've had issues with my with my um, with my birth certificate because it is it is handwritten in an entry in the alcaldía in Atiquisaya, and when I've had to present it for you know for retirement plans and things like that, all I have is a photocopy of a handwritten section of a page in a in a ledger, and. You know, somebody looks at that. And, well, how how do I? You know, so it's just it's just this the difficulty and in, um, in 
in defending your right to live in a way, you know? I mean, and, and you talk about that very eloquently, how that repeats again and again, even in the academic setting, when you're asked, I, I thought there were there were several passages, but I thought you were very you're you are very eloquent in the book where you narrate your experiences in academia and how often you have had to, you've been asked to document uh your indigenous self. Um, I mean, can you say more more about that? Yeah, so there's there has been stories like um that I have where you know my father has told me stories about fishing or stories about nature and I have like tried to integrate those in in academia, right? Because I think that it's important for me. Like I cannot separate my identity from the work that I do because you know the reason why I do this work is for my community members, for my parents. And oftentimes by professors, I have been asked to cite my lived experiences. But like going back to your story about your birth certificate, right? A lot of our stories are not documented in, you know, a way that's actually validated to begin with. Like you're talking about how people question your birth certificate and, you know, our elders are not because there's a lot of trauma, right, that they still hold. They're not all necessarily sharing their stories and then we have language barriers, right, where we don't have access to education. Like, it's a big privilege to be able to write down my father's story in English and, you know, for him to even be alive today, right, because we lost a lot of our children. And, you know, like, looking at the archives in the university, like, there's no archives written about, you know, about us by us, right? Most of them are written from, like, either international journalists who didn't necessarily capture, you know, the nuances that were happening in the war. Like, for instance, like, the story you share of the Gran Mantanza, how, you know, indigenous boys were, you know, told to wear dresses so they can kind of, you know, blend in with the girls so they wouldn't be targeted. And I think that there's a part of history that's still missing and, you know, it's kind of hard when the professor tells you to cite your lived experiences because, you know, you don't have, you know, you know, our communities are not peer reviewing or publishing papers, right, where we can be like, oh, yeah, we can cite our elders because they have years of publications. But when they don't, right, that's a that's a misunderstanding by academics. Yeah, I thought um, reading your your book, there were a lot of parallels there with the with the publishing industry as well, you know, the lack of the lack of of stories told by in our own voices, right? That I think the Salvadoran War is often being written by journalists or academics, but seldom by Salvadorans who who are who lived it or who are descendants of people who were there or were personally impacted by it, who have stories that uh, nuance and 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 fill in and tell of the of the of the war as it was lived by people um, and so reading reading your your story about academia in the sciences there are so many parallels with the way you know I just did a panel this Wednesday with a group of Salvadoran writers and and that issue surfaced again right the the fact that there are so few stories or maybe one or two stories that people continually go back to without realizing there's a plethora of experience that is missing from from our common knowledge right yeah 
And yeah, and that's something that we see, right? Like the ratio of like Central American voices to begin with. And then we do see some stories about the war, but obviously those stories are not necessarily told from our firsthand experiences, right? Like you were mentioning, they're written about the war. And then that's something that most people want to consume, right? But then in reality, it's not necessarily stories that center our entire selves, right? Because we are beyond, you know, we're not just defined by the genocide or the war, but, you know, it's something that we always have to bring up because, you know, it's not a part of our history. It's a part of our living selves, especially, as you mentioned, it's in our, you know, parents and grandparents' generation or our generations. And we're seeing that now in our generation through the forced displacement because of the ongoing violence that the war left, because, you know, it definitely impacted our people's mental health and you know, that's the violence that they're enacting against, you know, other people in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am of the generation of people who, who, um, who was there, right. Who I, I am here in the U S I'm speaking, we are both speaking in this language that is, you know, not my first language uh, probably not your first language in here, but yet we are, we move in this world, in this language um, and, and have learned, have learned to survive, have learned to adapt, have learned, absorbed a new, a new set of knowledges. Um, and yet this other history that we have um, just, you know, it's, it's, it's this little corner of us. It's not all of us. It's this little corner, right? That, that's why reading, as I was saying, reading even the, the printed words in your book about these places in El Salvador was really uplifting for me because I, I know those places. They're familiar to me. I've been to some of them, you know? Um, and and I, I was very heartened uh, by your book because there are so many thousands of stories untold. And here you are telling this story partially about El Salvador, but about many other things um, with El Salvador showing up and, and with El Salvador showing up in a text that is a text about ecology, about um, science. Right. And so, and I hope that more and more and more of that happens. It's not a literary text, right? It's not a memoir. It's not, you know, it's not a novel, right? It's this, this text grounded in, 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 in science and in your experience, in your professional experience, departing from your knowledge as a scientist and and experience um, obtaining your PhD. And, and yet here it is another, another, a wedge, a view into the Salvadoran experience. Um, so going back to the book, is there another part of the book, another section that you would like to read from? Yes, let me find it. And I think that um, this is like, you know, we were discussing how um, this kind of can introduce, you know, the great book that you're also working on. Um, so this is, entitled longing to return home so when i asked my father how the war impacted him this is how he responded not very well war is never something light to take it mentally impacts us in negative in a negative way i healed over the years from war but we still hold on to the trauma war leave us leaves us thinking that we will never be safe even now while being displaced i still do not feel safe War instills this fear we carry on for years. It has taken me years to come in peace with war and the impacts it left on me. 
I do not recommend war to anyone. It is bad. And that is a direct quote from him when we were discussing the war. Yeah, I, 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 you asked me in an email if, if, as I was reading this book, your book, was there anything about my work or poems that I have written that, that the book reminded me of? And I got to that when I read that section, I, I had to stop. It froze me, kind of, it stopped me in my tracks because that last line, I don't recommend war to anyone is almost verbatim a word, a phrase that shows up in one of my poems in this upcoming book that Rick was talking about that's coming out to put that under the moon that's coming out in, um, in May. And um, actually, if, do you think I could, would it be okay if I read it? Just, just because I think it's so, it's so amazingly striking. It's a very short poem. This is not a poem. Guerra doesn't go away when the bullets stop when the grenades go silent, when helicopters' blades no longer kick up the dust of innocence or presidential lies, there is no periphery to guerra. I'll say a giant cloaca propelling its stench on the ground in the sky underwater subcutaneously, clouding dreams, clogging guts, silencing tongues. Guerra does not know of lazy Sunday mornings or afternoon coffee breaks. It knows fear and death. I highly don't recommend it. So again, that that just it, it was it was amazing. Is is the same is the same line, you know. Um, so um, it, it made me feel seen, you know. Here's your dad saying this. He was there. I was there. Here we are, the two of us, never having met each other, but expressing the same sentiment. Um, so can, can I ask you another question about your book, which I, I thought was really, it was really powerful. Um, you in the section called ecofeminism talk about devote a large section of the chapter to, um, to traditional embroidery, right? That, um, women do, um, and you interview different you, you interview again, you bring voices from um, communities in Mexico where indigenous women um, embroider their huipiles. And I have known um, of the exploitation that happens and has happened with respect to the designs of, of these huipiles, this embroidery um, that has been stolen and copied and reproduce elsewhere, who knows, in purses and what else, right, in textiles elsewhere, without crediting these traditions, the ingenuity and the meaning that is embedded in the, in the embroideries. Um, and also just the exploitation, not only of that knowledge, but the, the way in which indigenous communities who produce textiles are exploited and, and um, you know, forced to, forced to sell something that is not just an item, but a piece of their history and identity for the least amount of money possible, right? So there's this active exploitation that happens all the time in, in little ways on the market outside of, you know, some Pueblo in Latin America, all over really, right? That we see that indigenous people selling because that is the avenue they have, um, being regateados, right? Being asked to lower the price. But you you acknowledge that. And then you also bring that 
that into this discussion of um, indigenous landscapes. And, um, and I just, I would love to hear you talk about that. That was really powerful in your book. Yeah, first of all, thank you for sharing your poem. Like it really struck struck me also, right? Because it's like, oftentimes when I was talking to my father, like he wanted to make sure that he didn't sound like he was romanticizing war. And I think that, you know, when you live through war, you want to make sure that, you know, you tell people this is actually not a good thing, right? Because oftentimes war can be romanticized. And we see that in Hollywood movies. We see that in romance novels where, where the soldier comes back. And it's it's a it's an interesting um, kind of discussion, right, that we can also have. Mm-hmm. Um but in terms of the huipiles, oftentimes, um, you know, coming from a family that, you know, it's, it's has a lot of um, artisanal women, artisans, right, who embroider and who weave. One of the things that, you know, I was always taught was that, you know, we embroider our landscapes into our huipiles, into our traditional clothes. And my grandmother always told me that that was a way that, you know, even if we were displaced, even if we were not necessarily within our homelands during that time, it was a way for us to carry our environments and carry our culture with us. And oftentimes, as you mentioned, huipiles are being co-opted, the designs are being co-opted and manufactured in high-end um, you know, fashion brands, or sometimes even they're bought at a low price, and then when you you know they're brought to the United States or Canada, sometimes they're kind of sold for ten times what they pay the the actual artisan for their for their embroidery, especially when it takes a lot of time. And I think that that's a way of like us in, including how we are a part of nature, right? Because we don't separate ourselves from nature, even in the ways that we embroider, even in the clothing that we wear. And oftentimes, you know, when people talk about like, oh, the separation between humans and nature, you know, unless you know how embroideries are or how they're, you know, manifested in your own communities, like people don't necessarily see the parallels between our landscapes and our Weepiles and for my Zapotec community, like that's why we embroider a lot of flowers, right? We embroider the flowers that Oaxaca is adorned by because we do have a high biodiversity. And I think we were talking about how El Salvador, even though it's a small country, it also has a high biodiversity where you can go 10 miles east or west and it looks like you're in a totally different landscape. And I think that, you know, that's a way for us to carry our landscapes but then when i look at my you know my achorti side right a lot of our wipiles were lost because you know our people were wearing regular clothes so that we can hide and then especially making the journey through mexico as there is a lot of xenophobia coupled with anti-indigenous racism right like people wanted to hide even the way that we we speak our Spanish, right? Like uh, a lot of people often tell, tell my my father that, you know, he sounds more Mexican than he does Salvadorian, but that's because, you know, he had to acclimate his Spanish to blend in. And I think that we would be less, right? It allows us to reclaim those part of our identities, especially those of us who come from Central America, where we were once denied, our grandparents or parents were once denied being allowed to wear those huipiles because it would be targeted to now where we can actually wear them but you know it's kind of like bringing a part of our homes even as displaced children of those people right so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i i i i was heartened um when i visited isalco those years ago because there was there is now a, 
uh, now at the school there. You could, and it's free. I mean, somebody was saying, because I seemed so interested to be there. I was there the entire time that the event lasted. I, I was there. And um, somebody said, would you, you know, would you like to come to the school? Um, and, you know, I said, I, I'd love to, and I would, but I live too far away. I, I couldn't, I couldn't make it even if I wanted to, but I was, interested and heartened that there was a that there is a there's glimmers there were also people from um rio lempa you know more in the middle northern section of el salvador uh indigenous cacaopera who had come to be present on that day in solidarity with the people of isalco and you know they speak a different they speak cacaopera but they were there and just the fact that suddenly this history that we were told that I was told is no longer here with us. There are no indigenous people in El Salvador was there, right? There was languages being spoken that I never heard, uh, you know, spoken before. And, and, and this school that was, that, that is there and that it's open to anyone. The, the, those are little rayitos de esperanza, you know, there are small little, rays of hope right um i wonder i wonder jessica if people have questions in the audience i just looked at the time and i i don't know if karen or rick expected us to break into to open up for questions from the audience i may have um just manipulated your you because i want to hear about your book this is rick chiming in just i don't think there are questions yet but um karen will put in a comment here to get to prompt them and see, but if anyone does have questions, there's a good time to put them in the chat. Thanks. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. There was another, um, when we started our, before we went on live, Jessica, you said you had a a chapter you wanted to talk about. and, And now I can't, you had identified a section in the book that, Oh, concentric ecology. That's what it was. Yeah. That is, um, and that, that was a term I was sharing with you. That's a term I had never heard before, this concentric ecology. Yeah, and that's um, the, the titled section entitled Concentric Ecology. So I'm going to read and, you know, I want to honor Dr. Enrique Salmon, who is Raramuri, who kind of came up with this term because oftentimes right when we go back to trying to explain our relationships with our environment, sometimes like you know, we have to come up with terms that can be translated into English to kind of embody those relationships. So it starts with our relationship where our environments differs. And it is important to mention this is this as we are not monolithic groups and our relationships are place based. Some of these environmental relationships, as previously discussed, are inherited based on where our ancestral lands are located or are those we cultivated through the diaspora. This human nature relationship has been described as concentric ecology, and this term has been further developed by indigenous scholar Dr. Enrique Salmon. This term tries to explain the human relationship indigenous peoples have with their environments through the notion that we're not separate from nature, but rather an integral component. Concentric ecology describes how indigenous peoples view their natural resources and surroundings as part of their kin, relatives, and communities. He describes how his, his Raramuri community embodies concentric ecology through Iwigara, 
their way of life and worldviews that make nature an essential component of their existence. He quotes, that Aramuri view themselves as an integral part of life and place within which they live. They, there is among the Aramuri a concept called Iwigara, which encompasses many ideas and ways of thinking unique to the place which we Tararamuri live. Rituals and ceremonies, the language in their for Raramuri thought are influenced by the lands, animals, winds with which they live. If we got them and the total interconnectedness and integration of life in the Sierra Madres, physical and spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that section reminded me of Chief Self's, the speech that is attributed to Chief Self, where he talks about the web of life and, and how we are all part of this web. And if you tug one way, you, you will have repercussions elsewhere because there is no separation, right, between the person and, and the place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I... Have you been to, to, to the Raramuri, to that territory? No, not yet, because um, I think they're more northern of Mexico. And, you know, because, you know, our um, Oaxaca is southern Mexico. I have visited southern Mexico all the way to El Salvador, but not necessarily the northern parts. <laughs> but, yeah, I, hopefully after the pandemic, I can, you know, be in community with them as well. Yeah, because you talk about, I mean, Mexico is enormous and, and the Raramuri that, what is it called? The Cordillera del Cobre or something like that, the Copper Canyon, uh, where they live, which is um, remote, right? But you have been in community with Duwamish people here, right, in Seattle. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to the teaching that my grandmother always, like, instilled in me that, you know, anywhere I went, I wasn't going to be in my home, right? Because we were, you know, my parents were the only ones displaced. My, you know, my parents met in Oaxaca because my mom's pueblo gave my dad refuge uh, when he was 14, um, along with my uncle, you know, his younger brother, who he, you know, brought with him so that he wouldn't be recruited. And I think that, you know, because of that, you know, they fell in love, then she had to leave her community in order to make it to the United States where, you know, they were, you know, offering some type of refuge or asylum, which is kind of ironic, right? Because the United States and Canada at that time played a big role in the war, right? And kind of providing the, the military with the equipment and the training. So, um, yeah, what was the question again? I forgot it. No, I was just, I was asking you if you had been to Copper Canyon, but, and you said no, hopefully after the, after the pandemic, but, but you are in collaboration where. Oh yeah. With with the the yeah, yeah. So my grandmother always told me, right. That I wasn't necessarily in my land. So I had to view being displaced as being in someone's home as an unwanted guest. And she always told me that, you know, in order for somebody to welcome you into their home, you have to like build those relationships with the people, not necessarily just the land, but also the indigenous peoples of those lands so that you can be welcomed into their home. And I think that as a result of that, right, that's a teaching that I carry anywhere I go. And eventually, since, you know, I was made it to Seattle, where, you know, to pursue higher academia, I had to build those relationships with the Duwamish and also the urban indigenous peoples, right? Because we are a hub for many urban indigenous peoples as one of the, you know, the largest cities. We have like a large native population as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you talk about pulling um, blackberries, that that description of, of land stewardship and how in this area that is, you know, a very large acreage, there is a section that has been granted uh, but there are no pa- there's no upkeep, right? So you're so you're doing this work with your students, and 
you talk about just the the difficulty of dealing with those brambles and that 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 I mean if you could tell the the audience a little bit about that that passage in the book where you're cleaning this section of of land with your students yeah so that land is um located in Discovery Park which is the largest urban um park in Seattle and you know that the 20 acres that are kind of leased to the urban indigenous community that makes up the Break Star Indian Culture Center is it hasn't been maintained for so many years I know that now other indigenous organizations are kind of continuing that work that you know that was started through that class and myself and one of the things is that you know our my students were able to remove wild blackberry and sometimes, you know, they don't even know that it was invasive because it's found everywhere in Seattle. And, you know, they will remove wild blackberry that was taller than them sometimes, right? Because these were like seven feet long. And one of the things that, you know, I kept reminding them and also our elders who we were, you know, working with was that even though they're invasive species, we should treat them as displaced relatives. And I think that oftentimes, you know, in conservation, restoration, when we do any any volunteer work with Seattle parks or any parks, they teach us to aggressively remove weeds, right? Because, you know, oftentimes, you know, they have negative impacts on their environments, but they're considered pests. But through the indigenous worldview, um, they're someone's relatives, right? And oftentimes they're, you know, they come from Europe. So people, you know, and especially Americans, you know, white Americans have lost their connections to their environments. And, you know, they're kind of removing their their own relatives without building that relationship with them, without asking them for permission to be removed. And I think that that allowed my students to understand the parallels, right, on how even going back to our first discussion on immigration, how it parallels to many people also being displaced. But yet, you know, a lot of us are considered relatives by the indigenous peoples whose lands we're currently, you know, occupying or settled in. And I think that, you know, it shows how, even conservation, restoration is kind of embedded, right? That that racism or that xenophobia is also embedded in the way that we steward our lands. And I think that, you know, that was the teachings that my students kind of took from that, you know, restoration project, especially as to, you know, even though they're invasive species negatively impacting our environments, we still have to show them some respect, right? Because there's a spirit behind that plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was... Um, beautifully said in the book that that the way you folded that anecdote into into the larger chapter and that that is you know just the the thinking that that comes that that's being revealed in this book which at times that there are several spots where I, I I was encountered new ways of understanding um how we are um interrelated right and and that that idea that you, you talked about you know be, be as humans being interrelated with each other and and the land that we occupy and just all of your work um your your experiences um navigating the educational system in this country also very powerful and and of course your insight and personal history that shows up as as you weave this other scientific concepts, um, but they're never just this dry analysis. They're really integrated into your personal history and the history of your families. It's really nicely done. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that, you know, it shows that 
um, how we view our landscapes, right? How we view our knowledge systems where, you know, indigenous science in comparison to Western science, it puts our spirituality, ourselves at the core of it versus Western science. We're taught to, you know, remove ourselves. And that's why we lose a lot of our, you know, our own community members who are not interested in Western sciences because, you know, they don't see themselves being reflected. And I think with indigenous science, we have to reflect ourselves because, you know, otherwise we are, you know, ignoring part of our kinships and also teachings that we have been passed down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful way to, to maybe close the conversation. I don't know, Rick or Karen, if you, um, if, if we have come to time or where we are, I think we could continue talking, but. um, Well, we all could continue talking. Um, Jessica, if your parents would, they'll read the book or have they read the book? Yeah, um, you know, my father calls it his book, which I think it is because, you know, he kind of starts the book, right? But yeah, he's told all his colleagues to buy the book. (laughs) Would you you think you'll ever do one of these with him as part of it? And not to take away from you and your book, but would he be, um, because that might be a fun, not fun, again, not, there's heavy (laughs) material here. I don't, but I just, we're smiling and laughing in a moment, but the conversation wouldn't all be that way if he was talking about things, but it just seems like, because I think the two of you have done this as sort of an intergenerational conversation, which again, my sense is more of a of an indigenous way. Who were you? You know, we're learning from you, but you're also helping show to learn from elders, your father and and Claudia as well in this and that part where because um, that often the old elders get devalued so often in so many things um, in in the culture in all in the big culture and the particular culture, not so much indigenous culture, not indigenous cultures actually. So anyway, that that because you. That's also part of what I think you embody that in the book in a, in a, in a wonderful way. And, and again, tonight has been that way. People are saying, what a wonderful conversation and asking about the recording. So anyway, to be continued, but um, Jessica, I think we'll be coming by the store um, at some point to sign copies, which we have at Elliott Bay. We, we mentioned beforehand um, when the book arrived and we had our first notes to Jessica about coming in. The books actually sold out. We had um, they were they were gone before um, we could get her in there, but we have, they have come back in in the way books can do that. And um, yeah, so uh, thank you both um, so much, and thank you those um, who are joining us. I see Paul um, Lava Sabalos is with us, and who's a wonderful Seattle poet. Um, well, Jessica, we'll put you in connect, connection with some of the other writers here. Now that you are a writer, writer, um, if you want to, because there's there are there is a community here, and including a, 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 a Seattle Escribe, which is a group of writers here writing in Spanish. Claudia, Claudia can fill you in even more. She's um, done that so wonderfully uh, in her work as a poet, but also when she was a civic poet. So thank you both. Um, thanks, Claudia. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Good night. Thank, yeah, thank you, you, Jessica, thank you, so Claudia. much. Yeah, yeah muchas gracias. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation between Jessica Hernandez and Claudia Castro Luna on February 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.